I'm glad to be back and with you today. I'm going to do things a little bit different uh, in this service, but I want to start by saying what I'm going to preach on, and we'll get to the scripture in just a minute. But today, I'm going to preach on God's missionary call, which is to make disciples. That is God's call, as we'll see in Matthew chapter 28, not just on 11 men, but on every man, woman, or child who says that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. That is God's call. Um, let me ask you a question to start. There was a, a woman by the name of Dora Yu. If you weren't here in the first service, does anyone know who Dora Yu is? Do you know who Dora Yu is? I don't see any hands. She was a Chinese medical doctor in the early 20th century and also one of the greatest evangelists in China at the time. She also did missionary work in Korea and God used her in mighty ways to bring many people to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In one of her crusades in 1920, there was a young man, he was a student, by the name of Watchman Nee. Has anyone heard of Watchman Nee? Okay, I see a lot, a number of people have heard of Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was powerfully used by God in China over many years to plant churches and to do all kinds of great work throughout the country. He spent the last 20 years of his life uh, in prison uh, in communist China. But God used Watchman Nee in great ways. And when he got saved under Dora Hughes' ministry, he was a student at the time, and he said that from the time he got saved, he began to look at his life and what is hindering my being able to be a vessel for God to reach others with the gospel. And he said that uh, he made a list of his friends, about 70 fellow students. He made a list of those friends, and he writes these words. He says, I would pray for them daily. Some days I would pray for them every hour, even while I was in class. He said, when the opportunity came, I would try to persuade them to believe in the Lord Jesus. And he says, with the Lord's grace, I continue to pray daily. And after several months, all but one of those 70 persons was saved. One life dedicated to the reality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. That's not just for Watchman Nee. But convinced Christians are contagious carriers of Christ's love. If you are truly a convinced Christian, that means that you believe that life is in the hands of God and he gives it through the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. If you know that, if you're committed to that, then you become a contagious Christian who is able to infect those all around you with the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This message today, God's missionary call to make disciples, why is this so important? Why is this mission of making disciples so important? I'm glad you asked. It's easy because... God so loved the world that he gave 
his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but they'll have everlasting life. God wants to reach people and give them life. And that life is in his son, and it is often transmitted by God's grace through those who have received that contagious love for Jesus. And so we are called to be those who spread that love. If you'll stand with me for a moment, let's look at Matthew chapter 28. That's what we're going to look at today. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. You can turn in your Bibles there. It's also up on the screen. We're going to go right to it. And, and I'll read and you just jump in right with me and let's read these verses. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. <clears throat> Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray. Father, we pray that as we come before your word today that you would dig our ears, you would soften hearts, that you would do a work. I pray in every person in this room under the sound of my voice that you would cause us to hear something that you want us to hear and that it would find receptive soil in our minds and in our hearts to the glory of your great name. So be with us in the coming minutes. And have your way in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to look at these verses, God's missionary call to make disciples. And as we do that, there's three main headings that we'll look at. And that is uh, Jesus' provision, Jesus' prescription, and lastly, Jesus' promise. So let's look at these verses together first. Jesus' provision, the revelation of Jesus' authority. Uh, let me look at verse 18. Look at it with me, if you will, if you have your Bible there. Tell me if I'm reading this right. The scripture says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority will be given to me in heaven and on earth. Did I read that right? I didn't. Uh-oh, that's a problem. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Brothers and sisters, I love this. Before Jesus calls his disciples, before he calls you or I to do anything, first he tells us the power on which we will be able to accomplish the task that he's about to give us. Jesus does not call his disciples, he does not call you or I to do something and leave us powerless to do it. And he doesn't tell us, pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you've got what it takes, you can do it. No, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth, that is biblical short for everywhere and everything, has been given to me. 
Before God calls you or his disciples to do anything, he lets them know, I have the power to do it. And I'm letting you know this because that is the power under which and through which you will accomplish the task I'm about to give to you. The power of God is available to the people of God. Listen, a lot of times we don't get that. We don't understand that. Listen, it doesn't feel like it most of the time. Can anyone in here say amen? It don't feel like it. Look, I talk about the power of this world. I can't even help myself in some things. And yet God has said that all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Listen, we fight against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's what Paul says. And we see it throughout the scripture. There are demonic forces. There is a real devil. There are gods of this world that are difficult and powerful and strong. And that's real. One of the places that the enemy destroys us in the United States and in Western culture is that we have relegated that to the sidelines to where that stuff isn't real. Everything is natural. Everything is scientific. We can figure it out that way. In Africa, they get it that spiritual forces are real. They are involved. They are powerful and they're not easy to overcome. But here's the reality of what God is saying, what Jesus is saying in this scripture is that, yes, there's a devil. Yes, there's evil forces. Yes, there's demons, but they belong to me. And when I say stop no more, they can't do anything about it because all authority is in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when he calls you as a believer on mission, he calls you and clothes you in his power not your own your own power ain't gonna make it in this world your own power can't stop your own sin you've tried it I've tried it I've failed again and again and again but God's power and the authority of Jesus Christ is more than enough it always is so our problem is that we live by our senses by what we see touch by what we hear, by what we feel, and that we believe that that is reality. God wants to tell you something. That's not reality. I'll tell you what. One of the best blessings of being away for two weeks, away from the U.S., away from the television, is I didn't have to see no news. I didn't have to see all that crazy stuff. But because we look at that as if that's reality, but there is another reality that is unseen that God wants you to see. God needs you to see. In 2 Kings chapter uh, 16, is it 16? No, 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha the prophet is uh, giving information regarding what is happening, uh, regarding what the king of Aram is trying to do. So what's happening is the king of Aram, which is an enemy of God's people, he is sending armies into Israel. And as he's sending those armies, God is letting the prophet Elisha know where he's going to send them and when he's going to send them there. 
And so the king is getting mad. He says, there's a spy among us. Someone is telling the Israelites where we're raiding, where our army is going before time. And I'm about to kill one of you when I find out who the spy is. But the people say, no, there's not a spy, king. But there is a prophet in Israel. What's his name? Elisha. Where does he live? They found out where Elisha was. And the Bible says that the king, he sent his whole army to kill one man. And so he sends the army into Israel and they surround uh, Elisha. There's chariots and there's horses. There is a huge army that surrounds this one prophet and the prophet's servant gets up in the morning and looks and he says horses all around us chariots all around us woe are we what are we to do we're in trouble we're dead and he goes to Elisha and he tells him what he saw and Elisha simply prays and he says these words in 2 Kings uh, 6 16 and 17 he says don't be afraid Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Not just horses and chariots, but chariots of fire. God's army was there on time to protect his servant. Just like Elisha's servant, brothers and sisters, we need to see, not with our physical eyes, but we need to see and know that God is on the side of his people and his armies are at work. One of the common phrases that you see in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular for God, is the Lord of hosts. I love the fact that in the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, it is uh, a translated Lord of the Armies because that's what it means. Sometimes when I see Lord of Hosts, I think it's the Lord of the Hospitality Workers. I love the Hospitality Workers. They do an incredible job here, but it's not talking about hospitality. It's talking about war. He is the Lord of the Armies. The armies of God, God himself is warring for his people, all authority. Brothers and sisters, we need to see that as God calls us out on mission for himself. Look at this in verse 16. He he has all authorities, let them know, but how did they get this revelation? Verse 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And look at this, when they saw him, they worshiped. And I love this part, but some doubted. Now, we know about doubting Thomas from the other Gospels, right? From John's Gospel in particular. But this is more, some is more than just Thomas, right? There's 11 men. I don't know how many of them doubted, but several of them doubted according to the biblical text. Who were these men? These were the 11 less Judas, right? Who had betrayed him. These were the 11 who were with Jesus intimately for three years. These were the 11 who saw the Lord of glory heal a man who had been born blind and now could see. These were the 11 who saw him. 
put his hands on a widow, on a widow's son who had died, and the, and the son got up, who saw him talk to a little girl who was dead and come back to life, who saw him say to a rock and to a grave, Lazarus, come forth, and a man who had been dead and stinking in his grave for four days came out alive. These are the men who saw him say to the sea and the storms, peace be still. The same ones that saw him feed a crowd of thousands upon thousands of people with a few fish and a couple of tasty cakes. And yet the Bible said, and he had told them, I'm, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise on the third day. And when they saw the risen Lord in his glory, it says some of them doubted. I love that. Because that tells me, and I hope it tells you, that, that God isn't finished with you simply because you doubt. The doubting disciples made a decision to worship the Lord. Listen, someone needs to hear this. You're not disqualified because of your doubts. If you read through this whole book of Scripture, anyone that it gives much ink to, you'll find out they went through stuff and sometimes they doubted. Listen, you're not more able than Abraham. You're not more committed than Caleb was, and you're not more dedicated than David. You should not be surprised that sometimes you're going to struggle in your faith. You're not disqualified because of your doubt or your struggle. Here's the question. What do you do in the midst of it? What will you do? What do you do? And the scripture says that they worshiped. I love that. They, they doubted. They saw the risen Lord. He, they met him where they said they were supposed to be, and, and he was there, and yet they still doubted. But they made a decision to worship God. Listen, we've got to understand what that word really means because sometimes I think we can confuse praise and worship. Listen, we should lift our hands to the Lord. Amen. We, we can jump and dance and praise and we can and should do all of those things. But the heart of worship is not how loud you sing, how high you jump or what your jig looks like. That's not the heart of worship. The word worship means to prostrate oneself. It means to get in a position where you are acknowledging one greater than you and humbling your, wife, your life into total submission to the one who's greater. The disciples, even in their doubt, worshiped Jesus. And I love this. What does he do with these doubting worshipers? Verse 18 says, Jesus came near to them. Listen, when you worship God in whatever state you are, in whatever struggle you're at, in whatever doubt you have, when you make that decision to worship, Jesus will come near you. You can know the reality of the presence of God. And someone said, well, he's always everywhere all the time. Amen and amen. But the manifest presence of God, the awareness of the reality of his presence there for you, with you, is what we need to accomplish his will and his purpose. And he is there for his people. The next thing, not only does Jesus give provision, but Jesus gives a prescription here. The command to make disciples. Verse 19. The, the, 
the, there's four verbs in this sentence in verses 19 in the next part of 20. There's four verbs, but there's one controlling verb over this entire Great Commission statement. And that is, it's one word in the Greek, make disciples. Two words in English. But make disciples is one word. That is an imperative command that Jesus gives. This is the command he gives not only to these 11, but to anyone and everyone who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It is unbiblical to think of yourself as a Christian, but not acknowledge that you are a disciple. If you are not a disciple, one who follows in the way of, I don't know what your Christianity is, but it's not what's in this book. God calls us to follow him in his way. And so the controlling verb that we have here is make disciples. The word has the idea of causing others to become full followers who willingly come under the teaching and influence of Jesus. A Zambian theologian, Joe Capaglio, said it this way. He says, Jesus commands us to make disciples, not just converts. I could go to Malawi and I could go in a million different classrooms right here in the United States, talk to young people and say things in such a way that they'll raise their hand or follow my prayer and say a sinner's prayer. There's nothing wrong with that, but we've got work to do. We need to make disciples. He says to make disciples, not just converts. And then he says discipleship demands a total surrender of one's identity, security, and being to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I'm putting it all in your hands, Lord. Every part of me belongs to you. You are my help. You are my salvation. You are my strong tower. You are the bread of life. You are the, the water that I drink. You are everything. You are the I am that I am. We put our lives in Jesus' hands. That's what discipleship does. And discipleship is the comprehensive uh, project of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever else we might say the church is about, it all stems from this, this idea of discipleship. Discipleship is what causes us to move for justice in this world. Discipleship is what causes us to care for the poor. Discipleship is what makes us go to the ends of the earth and right next door and in your family and open your mouth and tell somebody about the love of Jesus Christ. It all stems from discipleship. Israel was never ever to be the people of God by themselves and to hold it to themselves. And this Jewish evangelist, Matthew, who writes his gospel like no other of the gospels, in particular pointed to the Jews at the end of his gospel says, Make disciples of who? Of all nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every people group, everyone, everywhere. He said, this is not a Jewish thing. This is a God thing. And God cares about this whole big world. Make disciples, he says, of all nations. In uh, Genesis 12, from the beginning of the call of the people of Israel, when Abraham is called... God says, I'm going to make you a blessing to who? To every nation. 
Every nation will be blessed through you. And through the prophet of Isaiah, he says that I will make you a light to the nations. It was never God's intention to hold back and just for a few. But God wants to reach many. And he needs those who are committed to that discipleship to reach others. How do we do that? I'm glad you asked. Because in these verses, it gives us three participles, three other verbs to say, how do we go about this task of making disciples? The first one in verse 18, in verse 19, he says, go. Literally, it's going. It's a participle, but it could be translated as you go or as you are on your way. The idea is in going to make disciples, it is as you live your life, wherever you go, whatever you do, understand that who you are primarily is not a teacher, not a lawyer, not a city worker. Who you are primarily is a, is a disciple of Jesus Christ who is called to make disciples. So the family reunion is a disciple-making time. Amen? Family time together. No matter where you are, what you are, you are first and foremost a disciple-maker. As you go, wherever you go, whatever you do. So let, let me illustrate it this way, and I'm just going to talk a little bit about my basketball career. How, who is this white man in the dashiki talking about his basketball career? But here it goes. Um, I played a little ball back in my day. You know, I was pretty good. I was all right. Um, I played on my high school basketball team. I'll give you four irrefutable facts of my basketball career. Number one, I played on my high school basketball team. Okay? Number two, this is irrefutable. I scored points per game. Now, you may say, like, Jordan scored 30 points per game, right? Wilt Chamberlain one year scored 50 points per game. But I also scored points per game. Very similar in some ways. Number three, irrefutable fact, Michael Jordan and I have the same birthday. February 17th. You can look it up. Me and Mike are forever linked. But here is the fourth fact that it just may blow your mind, but I'm telling you, this is true. You can ask Mike. Michael Jordan has never, ever beaten me in one-on-one. Never. So now that I have some street cred, what does this have to do with the message? I'm glad you asked. Listen, if, if you're trying to teach someone or to coach someone in basketball, doing discipleship without going is like coaching basketball without ever getting on the court, without ever touching a ball, without ever putting on a uniform. You can talk about the principles of the game, but you can never score points from the bench. You've got to be involved in the game. In God's church, there is no such thing as discipleship that's not in the game. God wants you all up 
in the mix in order to be in the game as one being discipled and discipling others to the glory of God. The question for you and for me today is, are you in the game? And then, how are you in the game? Going. Secondly, he not only says go, but he says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I love this again. Here you have Matthew, the Jewish evangelist, writing primarily to Jews, and he doesn't talk an inch and anything about circumcision he says baptizing them this is the new inclusion in the covenant of the people of God is through this ordinance that Jesus uh, gave us a baptism and so he says baptize them in other words your going is not just for the purpose of going and speaking and doing but you are going in order that you might baptize them which means that they have come into the family of God and are now a part of the people of God we go with purpose who are they going to who are these 11 people going to they're not going to Christians all over the place because there weren't any right Jesus preached and healed and taught for three years and at the end of that there were only very few who were followers of the way. In the second chapter of Acts, we see that there's 120 in the upper room. Man, that's not very good church planting, Jesus. You weren't real effective, were you? Well, a day later, there's 3,000 that get added in a day. But because Jesus discipled a few. He discipled them well. And so his discipleship is that we go out in order to bring people to this Savior and this Lord. They are now included in the family of God as disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I love that. We have a triune God. It doesn't say in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, but it says in the name. This is our great God and Savior. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then thirdly, he says, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Now, in the CSB, it says teaching them to observe. In some other translations, it says teaching them to obey. I want you to know for certainty what it doesn't mean is teaching them to look at something and observe it. That's not what it's talking about. One of the main issues that we have in the church today and even what goes under the name of discipleship is that we think if we teach people enough Bible doctrine and we get all this doctrine into them and they know $50 theological words and they can say certain things like ordo salutis and they can say uh, hypostatic union and they know these facts and they maybe have some verses memorized. We think that we've done a good job of making disciples, but the teaching that Jesus is talking about is not academic. It's not mumbo jumbo. It's not about how much you know, but he says, teach them to obey, teach them to do everything I've commanded you. The teaching of discipleship is a teaching that ends in doing. There was an Olympic runner named Eric Liddell, and there was a movie made about his life, Chariots of Fire. But he said this, he was a committed believer, 
and he decided not to run his gold medal event on the Sabbath. He was uh, committed to the Lord, and his conviction was he shouldn't do it on the Sabbath, and he didn't. He ends up winning the gold medal in an event he's not as good at. God used him, but he said these words. He said, you will know as much of God and only as much of God as you're willing to put into practice. You will know as much of God and only as much of God as you're willing to put into practice. So you've memorized the book of Ephesians. Hallelujah, that's good. Are you doing Ephesians 1.1? <laughs> are you doing Ephesians 4.12 and 13? Are, what are you doing? That's how much you know. Not how you can impress someone with your knowledge. Not the big words you use. Listen, the true knowledge of God, not the facts about God or doctrinal positions, but the knowledge of the loving missionary heartbeat of the God who weeps over your sins and dies in, in your place for salvation. This is the knowledge that only grows as we walk in obedience to him. People who are on fire for evangelism are people who are saying, God, help me to do what I already know. We have too many people with big heads and small hearts in the church. God wants to increase your heart. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14 and 15. So discipleship is three things here. It's moving towards people who don't know Christ. That's going. It's bringing people into covenant relationship with Christ, baptizing. And then it is helping people to grow in heartfelt obedience to Christ, teaching. This is the call on the church. This is Jesus' prescription, his command to us. But I love this. I love this so much that this prescription that he's given us, this command to make disciples is wrapped up. We already saw in, in Jesus' provision before it, all power has been given to me and for you to work out of that power. And also, not only the, the provision before it, but the promise that comes after it. So look at the end of verse 20. He says, and remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's saying that no matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, no matter what your status in life is, I will always be with you. The God who has given, who has all power and gives you the power that you need to accomplish what you need to accomplish is the same God that says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll be with you always at every time. Listen, that's good for us to know. When life is good and when there's money in the bank and when things are going well and things are lining up well, we can say, God is with me. You better know that when things are going well. Sometimes that's when we forget. But listen, you need to know when everything is out of order, when sickness is in your body, when a loved one dies, when there's more month than there is money, when things are difficult and hard, this same Jesus says, I'm with you always, always, always. God is with 
his people. Let me give you this example. Years ago, I remember in the 70s, there was a preacher by the name of Reverend Ike. Some of our old heads in here will remember. It's okay to be an old head. Now, I am not prescribing Reverend Ike doctrine to you. He was a prosperity preacher before our modern day prosperity preachers. But he had a phrase that he used all the time. And he would say, you can't lose with the stuff I use. Now, he was using that phrase to take money from poor people and make himself rich. But listen, the phrase itself, that's what Jesus is saying in these verses. You can't lose with the stuff I use. I've given you my power and I've given you my presence. I will be with you as you're on task doing what I have called you to do. You can't lose with the stuff I use. That's true in the Christian life as we make our lives, as we ground our lives in the reality of the risen Christ, and as we live our lives for this same God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we make our lives not about ourselves, our possessions, our stuff, my passion, but we make our lives about Jesus Christ. He says you can't lose with the stuff I use. Let, let me, uh, just a couple more things I get ready to close. I want to quote something from a Nigerian theologian, uh, Tokumbo Adiyamo, who was a Nigerian theologian. He died in 2010. He was the editor of the African Bible Commentary, an incredible man, had a Ph.D. from Dallas Seminary. But he writes these words, being a disciple involves more than just being a student. It implies a personal attachment to a particular person who shapes the disciple's whole life. It approximates the traditional African practice whereby an apprentice lives with his or her teacher, learning by watching, listening, participating in everything the master does. The apprenticeship ends only when the apprentice can do what the master does. He says, this passing on of knowledge and experience is essential because there is no success without a successor. Listen, brothers and sisters, we as Christians need to be about the task of discipleship. And it is okay. I, I hear people say this all the time, and I feel it's fine about it. If God has given you a few people that in a particular season you're discipling those people, it's all right to say, you know, I'm discipling so-and-so. But I get scared when I hear people say, this person is my disciple. That scares me. Because even if God is willing to use me to disciple someone, they're not my disciple. I am not the master. Jesus is. And so I point that, that person who for a season in life, for a time, uh, that, I, that God is using me to disciple them to the master, to Jesus Christ. They are Jesus' disciples. But God uses his people in that task to make us all more like Jesus. So let me give you a homework assignment as I get ready to close. Four things, because discipleship is the mission of the church. So number one, ask God to show you one way that you can be more involved in discipleship. For some of you, you may be a brand new believer and say, I don't know who I can disciple right now. 
Well, it shouldn't be long until you can disciple someone. You don't need to wait 10 years. You don't need to go to Bible school or seminary. You just need to walk with God and read his word. But you may be saying right now, I need to find someone to come under and, and to learn from. And you press into that. Listen, no one should say, well, I can't find anybody. If you are like that woman who had an issue of blood in the Gospels, she was getting to Jesus no matter what would stop her. And those who desperately want discipleship and are willing to grow will find it. So you'll find it. Press in. But many others of you may need to be pouring out more. Listen, if you are constantly taking in and taking in, that was a great sermon. That was a great podcast. Have you read so-and-so's new book? But you're not giving out. You're not a disciple. You're a spiritually constipated Christian because you're all bound up. you got to give out. you got to pour out to others in order to grow. So ask what God would have you to do. Write it down and put it somewhere where it will be in front of your face. That may be right here in Matthew 28. It may be on your refrigerator. It may be in your bathroom uh, mirror. It may, put it somewhere, your journal, somewhere where you will see it. Write down what you believe God is calling you to do. And then ask God daily for grace to do what you've written. And then lastly, do it. Start doing it. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to mess up all kinds of ways, but start doing it. Listen, the disciples didn't get the revelation of Jesus' authority because their faith was perfect. They doubted, but they worshiped anyway. They started doing what God called them to do. Let's do that as a church. Let me just say this at the end. A lot of times we hear doctrinal words about what it means to be a Christian, and, and they can be right on. To be a Christian, you need to repent. A to the doggone men. And, and, and that's not just at the beginning, but that's at the middle. That's all through your life. You become a serial repenter. God is revealing sin, and you're repenting. That's true. So repenting, growing in faith, reading the Bible, all of these things are things that we do as Christians. But the word that most or the expression that most helps us to understand what a disciple is, is disciples are those who follow. Jesus said, come follow me. How are you doing that? What does that look like in your life? And what may be something that you know God is calling you to do in your life? To follow him more fervently. To walk in the footsteps of your Savior. And to spread his good word in this world. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Your faithfulness, O oh God, is to all generations. And we thank you, Lord, today that just as you were when you walked on this earth and saw a short little man in Luke 19 who had swindled a whole bunch of people out of their money, Zacchaeus, you called him to yourself and you said, I'm going to your house today. And many people had problems with that. This man is a swindler. He is a liar. He's a betrayer of his own people. 
But Lord, you threw out to the people and for us the mission statement of your life that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Lord, if that is your mission, I pray, O oh God, that for everyone under the sound of my voice, that we will make that our life's mission. God, help us to passionately desire what you are passionately desiring and to give our lives more and more to you that you might be glorified in and through your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our men can come forward. We're going to have a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper in just a moment. This is the covenant meal of the people of God. We remember the broken body of our Savior. We remember his poured out blood. And so if you're a believer, whether you're a member of Epiphany Fellowship or not, doesn't matter. But if you've given your life to Christ, this is a meal for you. This is a time to remember Jesus Christ and what he's done on your behalf. Listen, if you're not a believer, but you're here, we're glad you're here. But eating a little bit of bread and drinking some grape juice is not going to help you in any way, shape, or form. So we'd ask that you just let that pass. But talk to someone here today before you leave about your need for this God, this Savior, this one who loves you and who died on a cross for your sins.